You're listening to We're All Alright, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity and about our world today, despite what we see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. So I traveled recently from my home outside Boston to Italy to spend a couple weeks with my mom, who has lived there for some 20-odd years. Not having traveled at all in the last two years, aside from a weekend trip a couple hours drive from my home over the summer, and with the added complication of COVID-related travel requirements and restrictions, I did expect some discomfort, of course. What I didn't anticipate was the roller coaster of physical and emotional experience that this trip would bring. So travel back with me, will you? It's three weeks before my departure date, and I've scheduled a vaccine booster. This wasn't required, and I had only just become eligible. Hell, the boosters themselves had only just become available. But this trip was going to be about comfort, finding every conceivable source of added comfort and grabbing onto it. The booster, I told myself, would set my mind, well, I was going to say at ease, but honestly, that's too strong a term for how I felt about it. But it was something, and I'll take something over nothing. Next on the agenda, find and reserve, if necessary, the proper COVID test, because there are acceptable and unacceptable tests, of course, within 72 hours of departure. But see, I was leaving on a Tuesday, and I knew that Sunday would be tough, so that left Monday unless I wanted to go day of, which felt like too much. Friends who had traveled or had been tested for other reasons had paid upwards of $150 for rapid results. I was prepared to pay that, but Google found me a free testing site. Wait a minute, is this real? Can this be the right kind of test? It can't be. Seems like it is, though. More Googling, the airline's information page, the articles my mom had sent me, the U.S. Embassy in Italy website, the Italian Embassy in the U.S. website. Okay, this test seems legit, I hope. Oh, you can't book it more than 13 days in advance. So add that to the to-do later list. I should mention, I've never been a list person until prepping for this trip. Now I'm the most organized woman on the planet, she says, lying, but seriously, it feels that way compared to the before times. Now it's two weeks and one day prior to departure, booster shot day. I sit waiting for an available spot, simultaneously relieved to be here, healthy, checking this big priority off my list, and anxiously anticipating the next day's body aches and fatigue that accompanied the first two doses. And a thought occurs to me. Wait, can this booster produce a false positive test in a couple weeks? Now I'm all anxiety, no relief. My turn comes and the nurse allays my concern. No, no, that's not how the vaccine works. Phew, once again. So I stayed in that state, relief, for the most part for the next two weeks. Calm, knowing I had done and was doing everything I needed to do to make this trip as seamless as possible. And as the days went on, calm turned into happy and happy turned into excitement. 
I would be with my mom again for Thanksgiving, our favorite holiday, finally, after two years too long. It's now a week before departure, and an email arrives from the airline reminding me to, among other things, check the entry requirements for your destination. Well, vaccine card and negative test, right? Is there something else? And if so, you, airline, know my destination, so why don't you just tell me what else I need? Make a list, you know, like organized people do. (laughs) Then I remembered something. A quick flash across my mind, some website, some article, somewhere in my research about the proper COVID test, mentioned something about a form? Where was that? Now less excited, more frustrated, I find mention of this document required for entry into Italy. I also find, buried in the airline's website, a tiny little link to a page requiring an advanced degree to decipher, listing entry requirements for various countries. Got it. Add it to the list. I'm calm again. Excitement returns soon enough. One day prior to departure, it's COVID test day. My nervous system exhausted from the up and down, I arrived at and later departed the testing site more at peace than I had been in weeks. This was it, the make it or break it, go or no go of this trip. If this test comes back positive, there's absolutely nothing I can do about it except go home, quarantine, and do everything I can not to actually get sick. I remember thinking what a paradox it was. This sense of freedom I had knowing that some decisions were already made for me, that the options were predetermined. And if the test was negative, like I was 90% sure it would be, well then, off I go. And it was. So here I am, ready for takeoff. On board my flight, crossing the Atlantic at 45,000 feet, I'm as settled as I can be, as comfortable as ever, given an entire corner of a section of the airplane to myself, and as uncomfortable as usual. Because no matter how tired, how exhausted my body is, I never could, never can sleep on an airplane. The mandatory face masks add another layer of complexity that, combined with my tired and increasingly confused mind, turned the situation at times comically absurd. On several occasions, I pulled off my face mask in an effort to hear what the flight attendant was trying to say to me, leaving my headphones in place, of course, and looking quizzically at the flight attendant whose words I still couldn't understand, imagine that, gesturing at me to pull my face mask back up. Oh, that reminds me, there were also proper and improper types of masks allowed on board and inside the airports. This news, like the entry documents requirement, was found as part of my travel during COVID hidden treasure hunt. The rules also changed for my return flight. They've likely changed again since. They're like mutating along with the virus. Anyway, arriving in Europe, I braced for one final hurdle, the checking of all those documents before I could at last set foot on Italian soil and breathe that distinctly Italian air. It's hard to describe. It's what green smells like when mixed with sun, damp clay, and diesel. (laughs) 
but what I experienced upon arrival was probably the most surprising of my entire trip. Passport, open to my photo page, of course, plus all my paper documents in one hand, and my phone with digital versions of those same documents at the ready in the other hand, I approached the customs agent who requested my passport, then gave it a brief look, stamped it, and sent me on my way. That was it. No document review, no nothing. After all that. Was it because I had submitted all of this digitally, like the good little rule follower that I am? Sometimes. I can only assume. In any case, I was too tired to think about it. Exiting the airport, I saw my mom waiting for me right outside the door. I don't think I've hugged her so tightly since I was a little girl. With seemingly continuous news for years now of crisis after crisis on the southern border of the U.S. and a lingering and raging pandemic that has not only claimed the lives of over 5 million people worldwide, but has also laid bare incredible disparities among all the nations that share our planet of wealth, education, access to even basic medication, shelter, food, water... I'm thinking about borders, about immigration and migration, about national identity, and about unity and division in an increasingly global world. And in that spirit, I'd like to invite you to consider something. And depending on who you are, dear listener, you may already be way ahead of me here. That story that I shared about my recent experience traveling to Italy Can you imagine what a different experience that might have been had I not been, well, me? Had I not been an American citizen carrying a U.S. passport? Had I not been a native or near-native speaker and reader of English? Had I not been very accustomed to and very proficient in research? Or had I not been a white, cisgender, upper-middle-class presenting woman? And what about your own experience crossing borders, whether international, interstate, or more metaphorical, like leaving your family of choice to visit your family of origin over the holidays? Or even leaving your home to go to work, school, places of worship, or anywhere that requires you to spend significant periods of time with people who may or may not share your values, especially after two years of relative isolation with those who do. For this episode's five-minute history, I'm going to dip our collective toes into three distinct yet interrelated aspects of this obviously massive, complex, and nuanced topic of immigration, migration, and national identity. The first thing I'll touch on is nomadism. The word nomad gets tossed around a lot these days in an inspirational lifestyle context especially. But the truth is, nomadic cultures have existed for thousands of years, and many of them have been in continuous existence right up through today. In fact, it's estimated that there are 30 to 40 million people living in nomadic societies around the world today. 
What distinguishes nomads from travelers is that nomads have distinct purposes for their destinations, their temporary homes, and their migration is almost always cyclical, meaning they return to the same locations time after time. Nomadic cultures generally fall into three categories, pastoral, forager, or hunter-gatherers, and peripatetic, or traders. That's trader with a D, as in skilled tradespeople offering their services in exchange for money and other resources. Peripatetic people are the smallest percentage of nomads in existence today, though their numbers aren't insignificant. Irish travelers are perhaps the most well-known trader nomads, to the Western world anyway. They live across Europe as well as in the U.S. Others, with cultures and languages originating from South Asia, are currently living and migrating around Afghanistan, Iran, and Turkey. The lives and cultures of nomadic peoples are under significant and imminent threat from climate change, increasingly violent and technologically sophisticated wars, and unfortunately, as a consequence of something so many of us love about our increasingly connected world, and that is the relative ease of travel and tourism. These things are especially harmful to pastoral and forager people whose very existence depends on the land, and historically, the land has depended on them. Just to name a couple of nomadic groups I came across in my research, the Maasai of Kenya and Tanzania are pastoral people whose livelihoods have been significantly harmed by global corporate interests, including mining and factory farming, and by safari tours, which, let's face it, are largely run by global corporate interests as well. The other is the Nukok people of the Amazon basin in the southern part of Colombia. These are hunter-gatherers whose numbers are so low that they and their cultures are on the verge of extinction due to the trifecta of interrelated issues that I just mentioned— climate change, I think we're all aware of what's happening to the Amazon, colonizers exploiting the land to grow coca and make huge money from cocaine, plus a raging civil war. The second topic I want to bring forward is something that, to be totally honest, I had never given much thought, if any thought at all, and that is statelessness. Stateless peoples have no national identity. In other words, they do not legally belong in any nation, which means they have none of the rights and protections afforded the nationals of the places they live or try to live, which effectively means that they have no rights, no protections. There are an estimated 10 to 15 million stateless people around the world today. They include people whose home countries stripped them of their citizenship due to their ethnicities, like the Rohingya in Myanmar and Bangladesh, and the Kurds in Syria. Others have been rendered stateless due to changes in citizenship laws, making what was once legal, such as citizenship or legal residency by marriage or parentage, illegal. This is the case with hundreds of thousands of stateless people in Ivory Coast and in Nepal. Still others, like ethnic Russians in Latvia and Estonia, and descendants of Bedouin nomads in Kuwait, 
have become stateless due to changes in political borders and governance and have yet to be given a path to legal citizenship. For the last part of our five-minute history lesson, um, by the way, how am I doing with time? Have you been counting? I thought I would touch on something that hits quite close to home for us here in the U.S., and that is the fact that American citizenship means many, many different things for different people, depending not only on whether they were born in a U.S. state or a U.S. territory, but also which territory, if it's the latter. And for my global listeners, the equivalent of what I'm about to share is likely happening in your country as well. People born in U.S. territories are considered natural-born U.S. citizens, except for those born in the territory of American Samoa, that is. They are considered U.S. naturals, and what that means from a day-to-day practical perspective is that while U.S. citizens from other territories of Puerto Rico, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the Northern Mariana Islands can, while residing in one of the 50 U.S. states, do things like vote, run for public office, or have a job with their local state or federal government. Those from American Samoa cannot, even while they're living and paying taxes and serving in the military in the 50 states. And by the way, that having a government job thing is actually really significant. It's surprising to learn what kinds of fields and positions are run by some state and local governments. I'm looking at you, optometrists in New Mexico. The serving in the military thing is significant too, perhaps even more so. And this one really gets me. U.S. citizens from territories can and do in very, very large numbers serve in the U.S. military, but they cannot vote for the leader of their, of our country, nor do they have representation in Congress with voting power. Most territories have an official delegate in the House of Representatives. This person can do just about everything a representative from a U.S. state can do participate in committees, introduce legislation, and more, but they cannot vote on matters that affect the citizens they represent. Oh, but the citizens of the Northern Mariana Islands don't even get a delegate. And finally, citizens of U.S. territories are not afforded the right to a trial by jury. Puerto Rico actually has a federal district court with judges appointed and confirmed by the president and the Congress, just like all federal district courts in the U.S. Puerto Rico is the only territory, by the way, to have a federal district court. But its citizens, who I will stress are U.S. natural citizens by birth, do not have the right to a trial by jury. Things are changing on this front, slowly. Many people here in the United States are familiar with the growing arguments for Puerto Rico to become a state. What you may not be aware of, I certainly wasn't until just now, is that there was a decision as recently as 2019 by a lower federal court in Utah declaring the non-citizen national status of American Samoans unlawful, 
and asserting that they must be given the same rights and protections of U.S. citizens. This is making its way through the Court of Appeals as we speak. Hey, hi there. Wow, this is some really good stuff, isn't it? I'm so glad you're enjoying it. And I'm just popping in really quickly to share something else that might pique your interest. If you don't already know, I'm a coach, and this podcast is not only a passion, but an extension of the work that I do with my clients. I mentor experienced coaches, trainers, and consultants to radically up their coaching game so they can firmly establish themselves as the one and only go-to in their niche and to bring more of themselves to the work they do and to the world we share. If that sounds like you, I would love for you to get in touch. You can do that by heading over to phyllis.wilson.pw and clicking on Talk to Phyllis. Right about time for a thought experiment, yes? The concept of global citizenry is very popular right now among those of us in advanced societies, and especially among entrepreneurs, a group of which I count myself. And this new-ish wave of nomads is seeing a groundswell at this very moment due to the great resignation that began last year and is still going and growing strong. As we've discussed, nomadism is anything but new. Yet, the circumstances faced by the millions of stateless people worldwide, combined with the implications of this confusing citizenship spectrum for citizens of U.S. territories, really has me thinking about so-called digital nomadism and global citizenry in new light. There's one obvious difference between these groups of people, the stateless and otherwise non-citizens, and these nouveau nomads. And I mean other than choice or lack thereof about their homes, lifestyle, and livelihoods. And that is wealth or lack thereof, which of course is in many circumstances part and parcel of choice. But is that all? Is wealth the dividing line between those who wander and those who wander lost? It seems to me that blaming or chalking things up to wealth disparity has become our default, and it's kind of the easy way out of complicated, multifaceted issues. It also gives money, this construct that we humans invented, a lot of power. So is there something else? something much deeper and more universal to the human experience at play here? I, for one, think there is. And I would describe it as a dynamic, at times paradoxical, and often turbulent interplay between our innate sense of belonging and our natural desire to experience more, to know more of the world we share, while always knowing the direction home, to understand more and more of our differences so that we know ourselves more intimately. So in that vein, allow me to pose a question or two for your consideration. What might happen if this great resignation and or simply the explosion of work from anywhere, forced or chosen since the pandemic, actually turned into a massive global nomadic movement? What might happen if it's the comparatively wealthy 
who become the ones showing up in droves at borders all over the world? What happens to governments? What happens to borders? What happens for all of us? Here comes some good news. You know, I think we're all aware of the awful public discourse about immigrants and migrants, no matter where in the world you live. So this week, to counter all of that, I'm going to share four ways in which immigrants and migrants are not only great for high and well-functioning societies and economies, but are also necessary for them. First, so often the focus of this discussion is on low-skilled labor, But in fact, it's worth noting that high-skilled and specialty-skilled immigrants, especially in technology and science, are rapidly growing parts of populations in advanced English-speaking countries particularly. Second, in terms of low-skilled work, it's not as simple as immigrants being willing to do the kind of work that native-born citizens aren't. It's that when those kinds of jobs are filled, native-born citizens actually tend to move toward and are promoted to higher-paying jobs that require skills such as fluent language and higher-level communication that immigrants simply don't have. Third, somewhat related to the second point, more high-skilled native-born women tend to re-enter the workforce after having children and often re-enter at a higher level because immigrating women very often take caregiving and household jobs. And fourth, entrepreneurship is significantly more popular an endeavor among immigrants than among native-born people. Why? Well, often for the very simple reason that they're risk-takers, The decision to leave their home countries, whether they're fleeing desperate situations or simply searching for something better, is a massive risk. So what that means is that immigrants tend to be job creators at a much higher rate than native-born citizens. Well, well, well. Those are economic reasons, but I'll add a fifth. Call it soft and squishy if you must, but I call it true and human. Remember what I said about the interplay between our sense of belonging and our desire for more being a driver for global movement and migration? When immigrants and native-born citizens come together, we're giving and receiving both. Both the gift of belonging and the experience of more to and from one another. How could that not be great? How could that not be the best news? I'll finish off with some resources for doing the best you can my weekly list of interesting, informative, or simply just cool things I've come across while putting together this episode. You'll find links to all of these in the show notes. First is I Belong, the United Nations Campaign to End Statelessness by 2026. 
As I mentioned earlier, statelessness was not something I had ever thought about before, simply because I've never had a direct connection to anyone affected by it. And my sense is that many of you are in the same boat. So if you're interested in learning more, I recommend checking out the UN's Human Rights Campaign's website. And second, if you, like me, are disheartened by the realities of the impact of travel and tourism on nomadic and native populations, I have a couple websites to share. The first is the website of the World Monuments Fund, or WMF. I had never heard of this organization before. The WMF is a conservationist organization that does incredible work worldwide, preserving not just iconic and culturally significant monuments, but also natural spaces, traditions, skills, crafts, art, and trades. You'll also find great information about traveling responsibly and sustainably there as well. The second is a travel blog called Every Step, which I'm guessing is a play on Every Step. I'm not at all familiar with this blog or its author, though I now know her name is Steph. Her blog, and more specifically, the post that I'll link to, popped up when I was Googling ecotourism. And the reason that I'm sharing this is that this particular post is actually a compilation of 24 other eco-traveler bloggers' recommendations of top ecotourism destinations worldwide, which I thought was super cool. So now, if you, like me, are into following travel bloggers or travel Instagrammers, travel influencers, as the kids are calling them these days, you now have 25 more to check out. Thank you so much for hanging with me this week. I loved creating this episode and I hope you loved listening. I know I covered a lot here. So if you have anything to share, any perspectives or experiences you've had with travel during the pandemic, nomadism or migration, whether by choice, by force or by culture, tourism or ecotourism in vulnerable areas of the world, or immigration, whether you're an immigrant yourself or you've been otherwise affected by immigration, I would love to hear from you. You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.wilson.pw and on Instagram at allrightpodcast. And if you haven't already, don't forget to hit follow on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss an episode of We're All All Right. We're All All Right.